Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, where once again we're talking about uh, practical issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, on the podcast, we talk about a wide uh, variety of issues related to leadership. I've recently talked some about communication and uh, some organizational uh, uh, planning and things like that. Uh, but today I want to talk about uh, creating a learning organization, our even more than that, I want to talk about what it means to be a leader that's always learning. I recently wrote a blog, which I had some fun with. A person in our seminary told me that they had adopted a new motto in their department, and their motto is, win or learn. I really like that. Uh, win or lose polarities are not conducive to organizational health. Win or learn. That's a great statement about what it means to tackle problems, uh, learn from mistakes, learn from uh, setbacks, figure out what needs to be done, and constantly be asking yourself, how can we move forward? So leaders need to have a similar kind of mindset, that we're always learning and willing to learn new things, uh, not only to advance our organizations, but just to become uh, better people and better leaders. Now, I want to balance this because it's important for leaders to also be convictional. Uh, you know, we study long and hard, and we make up our minds about things, and, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, we want to have uh, biblical standards and biblical convictions. And so when I say that le leaders are learners, I don't mean that we're in a perpetual state of discovery trying to figure out, for example, what's right and wrong or uh, those kinds of ethical or, or, or moral standards. What I mean is we're constantly learning new ways to approach problems, new ways to solve problems, and, and new insights that help us to be better and more effective at uh, given the leadership we're responsible to provide. So uh, one example of this, uh, for example, is, uh, uh, is the story of Peter in the New Testament and his experience at a place called Joppa. Now, Peter uh, traveled there and stayed with a man named Simon, who was a tanner. Now, this is instructive because it tells us that uh, Peter was getting, uh, was, had some open-mindedness to dealing with, with people on an individual basis, not just collectively, because, you know, as a tanner, he would have been an unclean person to most Jewish people. And so Simon, or Peter shows some uh, openness uh, and some possibility of rethinking his position about cleanliness and what's clean and unclean by even staying with Simon. Now, while he's there, uh, a fellow named Cornelius has a vision which tells him to send to Joppa for a man named Peter. So he sends a couple of servants down there to get Peter. Now, while Peter's waiting for this to happen, it's about noon, and he's hungry, and he goes up on the roof to pray, and a large sheet of filled with people, or excuse me, filled with animals, uh, starts descending, and, and, he's, and he hears this voice that says, you know, Peter, uh, rise and eat. And Peter's like, no, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat that. I, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then the voice says, what God has made clean, you must not call common. And now, this sequence was repeated three times, which a lot of things get repeated in Peter's life three times, if you know what I mean. But this was repeated three times to sort of emphasize to him that God was really trying to get a new message through to him. So these messengers arise, arrive, and they ask uh, Peter to go with them, and he does. Uh, and when he, he arrives there, uh, he prepares to speak to Cornelius' family, and he says, God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. And then he wanted to know from Cornelius, why did you send for me? And Cornelius said, well, we've been sent for you to uh, ask you to come and speak to us, and we're going to follow what in instructions you give us or whatever message you give us. And so now Peter's starting to grasp the full meaning of the vision. 
He understands that God is trying to get his attention to remove barriers of cleanliness and uncleanliness and uh, Jewish and uh, uh, racial and ethnic barriers and to realize the gospels for everyone. And so Peter says, now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. He is Lord of all. And then he starts preaching, and while he's preaching, uh, the Holy Spirit moves powerfully, and people, even while he's preaching, start coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very interesting story of Peter changing his mind on a very crucial issue, really the nature of the gospel. You know, in the early Christian movement, there was a lot of confusion about whether the gospel was for Jews only, uh, for Jews and Samaritans who were partially Jews, or whether it was for everyone, meaning whether it was also for the Gentiles. And while you can read the book of Acts fairly quickly, this debate actually took place over several years as the church struggled to understand what it meant to get the gospel to the whole world. Finally, of course, the gospel did break out of its Jewish strictures and through Antioch and the church there became the gospel for the Gentile world. But that wasn't the end of it. You know, after that, Peter had to go to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, our, Peter was part of the meeting in Jerusalem where the delegation came from Antioch uh, to meet with the Jewish leaders to talk about the true nature of the gospel and what it was really going to be. And that was uh, in Acts chapter 15. It's sometimes called the Jerusalem Council. And in that context and at that meeting, uh, the gospel was affirmed as being for everyone for all time, meaning that you didn't have to become a Jew first through circumcision in order to become a Christian. Now, I'm telling you all of this really rapid uh, survey Bible lesson here to help you to see that Peter changed his mind. Uh, when given new information from God, when given new information about his situation, when experiencing uh, a different set of circumstances than he'd ever experienced before, and when confirming that with the work of God as he was observing it in the world, and then uh, confirming it further by consulting with and agreeing with the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, Peter was able to change his mind. Uh, life patterns that he'd always followed were, were, uh, were then uh, changed. Uh, convictions he'd always had were set aside, and practices that he would have never supported had he then endorsed. So let's talk about what it means to be a leader who's learning, who's always growing and changing and developing and trying to become the very best leader that, uh, you, that he, you can be. So the question then is this, how do you know when to change your mind? Now you have to, again, put this in the context of uh, we're convictional people. There are some things that we believe the Bible teaches, and there are some things we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that are either right or wrong, or ethical or unethical, or doctrinally sound, or full of doctrinal error. We get that. But, but moving beyond those convictional things that we will never change, how do we know on other issues when we're supposed to change our minds? So let me give you some suggestions. The first and most obvious answer is this, when God teaches you something new. Now, God can teach you something new uh, in really a couple of different ways. The first way, of course, is that God can teach you something new directly from the Bible. Uh, it's important for you as a leader to be studying the Bible, to be reading it regularly, and to be trying to find the answers to the, uh, the questions of life and the processes of leadership from the Scripture. Uh, it's important to, to do this uh, in, in such a way that the Bible is real and relevant in what you're facing on a, on a daily basis. So therefore, read the Bible, study the Bible, internalize the Bible, put the Bible into practice. Now, the Bible is an amazing book. A, thir a, a, a third grade child who can read the Bible can understand it, and yet a person with multiple PhDs can't exhaust its meaning. 
And so you're never, ever going to get to the place where you say, well, I know the Bible. I know what the Bible says. I finished with the Bible. The Bible's, uh, I, I know all there is to get out of the Bible. No, you have to have a pattern of lifelong Bible study and Bible interaction to let the Bible shape your life. And the Bible will teach you new things. You say, well, if the Bible is always true and it's always the same, how can it teach me new things? Because you're the one who's always changing. You know, when I, when I was, uh, for example, newly married husband, and I read what the Bible had to say about marriage, I saw it through the lens of my circumstances at the time. And I tried to put it into practice, put it into practice based on what I knew at the time. And so if you asked me what does the Bible mean about marriage, I would have explained it to you in terms of what I understood about marriage as a very young man. But I've been married almost 40 years now. And when I read what the Bible has to say about marriage today, the Bible hasn't changed, but I've changed. My perspective has changed. My maturity has changed. My, my understanding of relationships has changed. Uh, I, have come to, I have come to see how the Bible uh, or what the Bible means in a different light because I've changed over time. And it's the same thing in, it's the same thing in leadership. Um, you know, as a younger leader, I read passages of Scripture that were directly about leadership, and I answered those questions or I, I applied those insights a certain way. For example, when the Bible says the greatest among you is the servant of all, as a young leader, I, I thought I knew what that meant, and I put it into practice as best I could. Uh, and then over time, as my life has evolved and my responsibilities have changed and my opportunities have grown, I've had to learn in a, new, in a fresh way what does it mean to be the servant of all and to demonstrate a servant spirit in every context. And so now I would answer the question or I would interpret the Bible of what does it mean to be a servant leader a, a little differently because I've come to see it differently because of my life experience and life situation changing. So when I talk about uh, that you're a leader and you have to change your mind, uh, the Bible's not going to change, but how you understand the Bible, how you uh, apply the Bible, and how you view the Bible's truth in the context that you now experience will always be changing. And so you, first of all, change your mind when God reveals something new to you from Scripture. But there's another way that God also uh, might speak to you, and that's through spiritual promptings or spiritual direction. Now, I know this is somewhat mysterious and difficult to quantify, and so I'll just simply talk about it and, and not try to be overly analytical about it. I, I believe that God, by His Holy Spirit, does prompt us with thoughts and ideas and directions uh, and with insights. And so sometimes as you're moving through life and you're reflecting on what the Bible says and how you've applied it and what you've learned and how other Christians have impacted you in the context of leadership and what they may have taught you, God will give you a changed perspective that comes from his spiritual promptings. And so uh, there are at least two ways that, the, that God will speak to you that will help you to know as a leader that you have to change your mind. First, he'll speak to you from the Bible, uh, speak to you from the Bible in a fresh way, in your context and in your situation and with your current level of experience. And then secondly, God will speak to you through spiritual promptings, giving you insight uh, into what he wants done or how he wants you to think differently based on the, uh, the, the sum total of the intuition and spiritual uh, insight that he gives you by the leading of his Holy Spirit. And so those two ways that God speaks, you have to be willing to change your mind. Now, there's a whole other category of information that's also been helpful to me. Uh, you also, as a leader, must change your mind when you l learn new, extra-biblical information that doesn't contradict Scripture in any way, but really doesn't even speak to an issue that the Bible really addresses very uh, thoroughly or even perhaps at all. 
Let me give you some examples. Uh, for example, over the years, I've learned accounting principles. Now, believe me, I'm no accountant. But I've learned some accounting principles, and they've changed my thinking about corporate financial management so that the ways that I managed money when I first started out in ministry have changed over the years. I now know uh, principles about managing resources that I didn't know 20, 30 years ago. I now know best practices. I, I now know uh, commonly accepted practices. Uh, I, I know some, some things that have been proven over time in large organizations to generally work. And, and so I, now that I've learned that information, it's certainly changed the way that I administrate financially. For example, a, a person came into my office this morning and asked a question about seminary finance. And I gave an answer uh, based not on the uh, immediate information of the day, but based on my experience of having been here now for 15 years uh, and talked about uh, how to work through the solution to the problem he was raising based on the broad spectrum of information I now have. If he had asked me that question 15 years ago, I would have given a different answer, and I would not have given as good of an answer as I gave today. But because I've learned some things about accounting, financial management, best practices, uh, some uh, common understandings of how large organizations handle money and what's generally accepted principles or generally accepted practices, I'm able to give much better answers today. Another area is personnel law. I'm, again, no attorney, but over the years, I've had to learn a few things about personnel law. I've had to learn some highlights about what it means to obey the law in relationship to personnel. And then beyond that, I've had to learn some best practices that emerge out of the legal system in which we live of how to administrate personnel. Uh, and then beyond even the legal aspects of it, there's things I've learned about uh, salary administration and how that's done well in large organizations. And I've had to learn about um, how to create uh, benefit structures that benefit both organizations and individuals. And none of these things I, I knew anything about, you know, 25 years ago. I, I learned something about them when I was in my first large administrative job. But now that I've been here at the seminary for years, I've had to learn even more about them. And as I've learned these new things... I've continually been open to changing my mind and changing my practices. And so the way I do personnel administration, for example, today is much differently, much different than I did it 20 years ago, even much different than I even did it five years ago, because we continue to learn and grow and develop, and you get better at what you do by taking in this new information. Uh, there's other areas. Uh, for example, um, I've had to learn some things about my personality profile and my learning style. I know how I like to assimilate information, and, and now that I know that, I'm able to uh, assimilate it faster and to assimilate it more effectively because I've learned some things about my learning style. And by communicating that learning style to the people who work with me, they're able to give me information in ways that I'm able to take it in more rapidly, and that's made me a better leader as well. Uh, here, here's one that's on a personal basis. Uh, a few years ago, um, I learned that I have a love language. I learned how I receive love and what means love to me. I also learned that about some of the key people that I work with and the people, of course, in my family. And so one of my challenges over the years has been to learn not to give love in the way that I want to receive it, but to instead express love in the way the person I'm talking with feels loved. And that's a huge breakthrough for me because it moves me away from sort of a self-centered approach of I want people to relate to me in the way that uh, you know, I want to be related to, and instead changes my focus in helping me to diagnose and analyze how to relate to people on a better, uh, in a better way, and in a more individually, in a more individualized way. 
Um, so these are just some way, some areas of life where I have uh, learned and grown as a person and as a leader uh, over the years. You know, this is why leaders need a formal process of education, and they also need an informal learning plan that they're always uh, work that they're always working on to make them better leaders. Uh, you know, leaders need formal education, and the reason that you need a formal education is because it will force you to learn things that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. I know sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't really need seminary. I'll just read, and, and, and I'll read theology, and I'll read commentaries, and, and I'll read practical books on how to do ministry, and, and from those resources, I'll, I'll learn and grow and develop, and I'll go to conferences or things like that. Listen, all that's great. I get that. But the reason that that won't accomplish what a formal education will accomplish, accomplish is a formal education will, will force you to read and study and experience information you would never have sought out on your own. You know, when we design the curriculum here at the seminary, we design what we call a well-rounded or a fully-orbed curriculum, meaning that we have looked uh, at all the aspects of what ministry leaders confront and deal with and must interface with. And we want people who come through our formal education process to be exposed to and to have to encounter that fully-orbed curriculum. You know, if, if it were left to me, there, there are certain aspects of life that, that I would study uh, uh, intensely, and there are other aspects that I really, frankly, wouldn't give much thought to and certainly wouldn't want to take a class on. But by entering into a formal education process, it forces me to be more fully orbed, to be well, more well-rounded, to have a better sense of all aspects of what I need to know to be a ministry leader. So ministry leaders, uh, really all leaders, but particularly ministry leaders, need formal training because it forces you to encounter issues and aspects of leadership that you wouldn't uh, otherwise uh, that you wouldn't otherwise study. Now. Leaders, once you've moved through that formal process, you also need what I call an informal but structured process of leadership development. And, and I work on these uh, periodically for myself as a leader, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, a few years ago, when I first became president of Gateway, and this actually lasted for the first few years I was president, um, I asked myself this question, where do you go to learn to be a president? Well, there's a few conferences, I guess, you can go to, but there aren't very many. And there's even fewer on how to be a seminary president. And so I said, well, I need to really focus on what it means to be presidential and what the scope of being a president is like. And so I thought, well, the best place to do that is to read about presidents. And so for a number of years, I read um, presidential biographies of U.S. presidents. Now, what I did, first of all, is I, I, I looked up the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographies, and there have been several. And then I looked uh, from those at uh, sort of uh, reviewers to discover beyond the, those who won Pulitzer Prizes, but beyond that to who, who were the recognized best biography writers among American historians today. And, and then the third thing I looked for in the reviews was, okay, who's the standard, the, the one that everyone looks to? That, that's the, the, the gold standard of the biography on that president. And so I started reading presidential biography. And for the first few years I was a president, um, I, I was constantly reading and reflecting on what I was discovering. And I was asking myself these questions as I was reading. What did, can I learn about executive leadership? What mistakes did this person make? How did they handle their mistakes? How did they choose their teams? How did they navigate the political waters they found themselves? And I was always probing the biographies with these questions that were helping me to learn insights that I could apply into what it means for me to be a presidential leader. Well, then last summer, 
about a year ago now, um, I did another informal project. I, I really uh, wanted to spend some time uh, looking into the lives of some other significant leaders and seeing the grand arc of their lives. How did God use them over time? How did God uh, take them through circumstances and through difficulties and things like that? And so I selected four biographies to read last summer, and I chose biographies from different eras, uh, from people who had a little bit different theological persuasions, although all were very well-recognized Christian leaders, and, I, um, and from different eras. And so I read these biographies, reflecting on them each day, and I, I set it out as a summer project. So rather than try to blitz through them, I, I only read two chapters a day. Even if the story was engrossing, I still limited myself to only two chapters because I wanted to not only read, but I wanted to write a paragraph of reflection about what I read. And I did that over last summer, and it was a great experience of, again, uh, seeing the arc of God's work through a person's lifetime and seeing how things fit together in the grand narrative, if you will. Because quite honestly, I've been asking some of those questions about my life. What is my grand narrative? What, what's going to be, when I look back on it, sort of the, the overarching way that God used me and the theme that God interwove throughout all of my life experiences? And while I don't know that yet, it helped me to read those biographies to sort of get a sense of the bigness of God and his overarching plan for my life. So um, you need formal and informal processes of education. And then another informal process I've used is is uh, annually I, I look th to a couple different sources, but there's places online where you can go to find reviews of like the 10 best business books or, uh, you know, top business books of 2018 or 2017, those kinds of things. And I don't really always try to read the hottest book that just came out. I try to read, uh, uh, I try to look at a list of, okay, what were the best books of last year? What were the best books of the last six months or the past 12 months? Because I want to read things that have sort of been field tested a little bit, okay? Uh, I don't have time to read everything in print, but I do have time to read the things that rise, where the cream rises. Those are the books I want to read. So I just recently, for example, um, came onto a list of uh, the 10 best business books of 2018, and, and, uh, and I went through those, and, and not all of them were really applicable to what I'm doing, but there were three of them that were, and so I bought those three books, and this fall, that's my uh, informal learning plan, is I'm trying to read those three books. In fact, I've worked my way through one of them. Uh, already, I'm a little bit ahead of the game, but I'm I'm uh, working my way in through into the second one now, and I'm reading these and reflecting on the seminary, reflecting on my life, reflecting on the leadership I'm doing, and trying to pick out the nuggets of truth or insight that will help me to continue to grow and learn and be a be a better leader. So. Um, the first thing we do, of course, is we learn from God. We learn from His Word, we learn from the direction of His Spirit, and we change our minds. But the second thing we do is we learn new extra-biblical information, and that can come from lots of sources, accounting principles, financial management resources, employment law, employment administration, um, learning style, uh, love languages, personality profiles, formal education, informal education, personal learning plans that we write and that we follow over time. All of these things give us information that help us to learn and grow and change our minds. Now, um, another thing I want to address just briefly here at the end is, what if you, when you change your mind, have to admit that you've been wrong about something? In other words, you, you've had a position, you've applied that position as a leader, either in your organization or in your, in your ministry, and now you've changed your mind. Won't people be discouraged by that, or won't they feel like that you've let them down, or won't they feel angry with you? Well, in some cases, possibly, but I've experienced this overwhelmingly over the years, and that is 
when you admit that you're wrong, your followers will say one of two things. Number one, they will say, wow, finally, because they probably saw it even before you did. And number two, they will say, wow, I'm glad I work for a person who can change their mind when they know they're wrong. You know, it's pride and arrogance that holds on to the idea that leaders don't make mistakes. We do make mistakes, and our followers already know that. And so when we admit a mistake, it doesn't usually diminish our standing in the lives of our followers. It usually raises our standing because they say, I already saw the mistake. I'm glad I have a leader who's perceptive enough to see it for himself or herself. And then secondly, they say, and I'm so glad I follow someone who's willing to admit that they're wrong and willing to back up and go a better direction because the well-being of the organization is more important than them holding in their pride to their own position. Now, you may think that I was wrong are undermining words to your leadership effectiveness, but they're not. In fact, if the three most powerful words in a personal relationship are I love you, uh, the three most powerful words in a working relationship might be I was wrong. Because when you say those words, it almost always leads to a uh, to, um, you, to being more appreciated as a leader and certainly leads to more effective function as an organization. You know, I've only encountered one person, but I did have this experience once. In one of my leadership classes here at the seminary, I require students to actually go through an exercise of writing uh, a narrative description of the worst leadership mistake they've ever made. And then I lead them through a process of how to analyze a mistake, how to admit you're wrong, and we work through a process so students can, can learn the pattern of what I'm talking about today in the podcast. But I had one student who couldn't do the assignment. He simply came back to me and said, I've never made a leadership mistake. Now, he really said that. I've never made a leadership mistake. I said, you're telling me that you've been leading by the, your age, I would guess, 20, 30 years? He said, right. And you've never made a mistake. He said, no, because I've always done what I thought was right in the moment, and so therefore it wasn't a mistake if I did something that didn't work out the way I hoped it would or the way we thought it would, because I always did in the moment what I thought was right. Well, I get a little bit of his perspective, but quite honestly, there's an arrogance bleeding through there that troubles me. But more than the arrogance, there's also an insecurity. You see, it takes security in yourself and in God and your relationship with Him and also security in yourself and your organization and your relationship to your organization to say, I was wrong. And to be able to say that and is, a, is evidence that you understand something about yourself and something about God and your organization. So I would encourage you today, uh, be a learner. Be a learner. As a leader, be open to new things. Certainly don't compromise your core convictions. Certainly understand there's a bedrock of truth that we will never change. But when God, through the, his word or his spirit, speaks to you about something new, or through, extra, through other uh, uh, re, uh, venues of extra-biblical information, you receive new information that makes you a better leader, have the humility and the courage to change your mind. And to say, hey, I was wrong about this. We need to go another direction. And when you do, you'll find that people will still follow you. You'll still have the capacity to make a difference because in those contexts, you'll still be able to be the leader God wants you to be. Hey, keep this in mind and lead on.